Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. That's it. That's perfect. Thanks. I, yeah, I know. It's okay. I, I always, uh, uh, when you think about questions like this, I always ask myself, what is the theological rationale for even talking about, for even having a category for God delighting in something? And the shortest answer is this. The reason, so I, I looked up all these verses in the scripture where, the, the, where it says God delights in something. And the reason we're going to talk about God delighting in things is because the scriptures do. And that's it. I, I, I don't know necessarily if I have a theological framework for explaining and understanding how the unchanging God, the God of the universe, could take delight in something. You know, I, I don't know if I can understand all that theologically, but it's in the Bible. Over and over again. So what I did was I did this search on all the times that the word delight is used with God as the subject of that verb. Does that make sense? Because there's tons of stuff in scripture about how we should delight in God. We should delight in his praise and all that stuff. But where God delights in something or where, where God is pleased in something. And so the one I wanted to start with today, the idea of, you know, God delighting in something... I, I just have this series of things where each sermon is going to be a different thing that God delights in, and we'll just unpack it. And the, the, the reason I put the first one today, this one I'm going to tell you about today, the reason I put it first is because it's something that shows up in the scriptures not just one time or two times. Like there are some parts of this series where it's really just one verse. There's one time where this thing, God delights to do this, and I'm like, wow, that's a whole sermon right there. But this is different. This shows up not just in one or two places, but by, by my informal counting over a dozen times we see this in scriptures that god delights in this thing and we're going to find this object of god's delight this first one of many uh the one we're going to look out to look at today in two places in scripture so i invite you to turn to psalm chapter 18 turn with me in your bibles to psalm 18 i'll have the verses up here on the screen as well and this is interesting if you uh if you don't want to turn to Psalm 18, you want to turn to an alternate scripture, this is actually found in two places in the Old Testament. It's also found in 2 Samuel 22. Now, we're all going to be at Psalm 18, but just so you know, the exact same verses were happening in 2 Samuel 22. Now, here's why they were in both places. What's going on in 2 Samuel 22 is David is reflecting on his life. King David, you may or may not know, this king in the Old Testament that God anointed to be the king, he wrote all these prayers and these psalms in the Old Testament. Many of them were prayers out of his own life, out of his own experience, out of his own heart. I'm sure not unlike those of you who are songwriters in the room now. Something strikes you and it becomes a song. Same kind of thing. He's in 2 Samuel 22. David is a warrior king. He's always needing to be rescued. And he prays this great prayer of thanksgiving, celebrating God's faithfulness. And uh, in particular, he is, if you look at the top of Psalm 18, it gives you some background. For the director of music, it is a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. He sang to the Lord the words of this song in 2 Samuel 22, when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies, and in particular, from the hand of Saul. That's in that little information box right under where it says Psalm 18 in your Bible, particularly where he... Uh, delivered from the hand of Saul. What happened was David was this warrior king, and uh, the, one of the most famous times he was rescued was when he was on the run from King Saul, his predecessor. And he was on the run from King Saul for doing what? For being a faithful servant, uh, being a loyal warrior for King Saul. I mean, here, here's what he's guilty of. He was best friends with Saul's son, and he married Saul's daughter, uh, 
totally faithful, totally loyal. And yet Saul, out of jealousy, out of pride, you may know the story. I mean, David killed Goliath for King Saul. The list goes on and on. But then there's this jealousy. So Saul plots to take David's life. And he's running. He's hiding in caves. He's always outnumbered. And in the end, he realizes, God, it's God all along who has delivered me from all this, particularly delivered me from King Saul. And this is his psalm of praise, his psalm of thanks. Now, all that business about the background in 2 Samuel 22, that's not just fun Bible trivia. That's going to be important later. We're going to come back to that. So I wanted to set the scene for what we're seeing here. So you could start saying verse 16. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of the deep waters. Verse 17. He rescued me. You see what David's saying? This is everything God did. He rescued me from my strong enemy. Who's that? King Saul. And all the, all the foes that, that Saul had amassed. And from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. He's like, I could not have done this on my own. This was clear, clearly God's rescuing. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And there it is. There we have our first topic. Our first thing that God delights in. He delighted in me. God delight, that's, God delights, the very first thing, the thing we're going to start this series with, God delights in his beloved, in his people. And I thought it might be a little boring if we found a text that said God delights in his people because you might think, yeah, God delights in his people. You know how nothing becomes really dynamic until it becomes specific? That's why Jesus doesn't say, love everyone. He says, love your neighbor. Because it's easy to love everyone, it's hard to love Bob, right? I mean, oh, he's cutting his grass, and yours is always so tall, and just relax a little bit, right? And that's why Jesus says, hey, if you want to be, you know, a, a pretty nominal Christian, just, tell, just love everybody. But love Harry from accounting. That's who Jesus wants you to love. Try that, right? You see? And that's what I wanted to do for you, to put a real fine point on it. The verses do not say here, it's not being highlighted, God delights in his people. The sermon today is the first object of God's delight is you, person. In this case, David. Now, I didn't think that's how we were supposed to talk about ourselves, right? I mean, you're not supposed to like walk up to people throughout the week, you know. God delights in me. I'm a delightful child. It drives him wild. I'm a delightful. I'm not sure what that, what that was. God delights in me? You're not supposed to talk like that. You're so, come on. Now, if you're new to church, you need to know something. There's this unspoken rule that you're not supposed to say, God Almighty, King of the universe, Lord of glory, delights in me. What you're supposed to say is, my righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. I am dead in my sins and transgressions. I'm nothing but dust. And the pastor who reminds me of this most is Tom Richter. I mean, that is a classic Tom Richter sermon. You felt good about yourself? You're a sinner in the hands of an angry God. Jonathan Edwards for the win. Right, you understand? So nobody thinks you should not, inside of me, when I read this scripture, I can't help it. I read that, and there's something in me. It's like, David, if you weren't authoring holy scripture, I'd accuse you of heresy. <laughs> this is the Bible, Right? 
So, you know, you can be excused. But my point is you're not supposed to say that. So if you're sitting here, if you've been in church a while, and you're going, Tom, are you actually going to, are you actually saying God delights in a human being? I would say, no, I'm not. The Bible is saying that. And so I have to also say it. Uh, It's not necessarily what I would have chosen. But there it is, unbridled delight that God has in a human being. Like specifically human beings, like you, like me. Uh, The word for delight must mean something other than delight, but I looked it up in Hebrew, and it means delight. Uh, It means there's a joyful element to God's love. Here's why that's so important. What David is saying here, listen, listen. If you've listened to enough of my sermons, I talk a lot about God's faithfulness to his word. God's faithfulness to his covenant. Now, covenant is a promise that he makes to his people. And God has this Hebrew word chesed. It means loving kindness, loyalty. You will hear me, right, say that God is loyal to his covenant promise. If you hear that long enough, you might, you might get the misunderstanding that God loves you because he's covenantally obligated to love you. And while that's true, that's not what's being highlighted here. The image is not God going, well, I've obligated myself to these people, so I'm going to love them. But I don't have to be happy about that fact, right? I've made my bed, now I'm going to, right? I'm covenantally obligated, so I'm going to grind it out for the rest of eternity with them. But I'm not real thrilled about the prospect. That's not what David is saying. He's saying the opposite. He's saying God is joyfully attracted to David. He delights in him. I believe it is true that he's covenantally committed himself. I do believe he's keeping his promises and he won't go back on his word. But that's not what's being highlighted here, right? Here David is pointing out God has this joyful attraction to David. Now, Tom... You might say, couldn't this, I mean, can you see why preachers would be hesitant to go full bore on this? Like, can't you see how maybe this could be misconstrued or misinterpreted? Am I I the only one? Like, I I thought of some misunderstandings here that could be very common. Like, couldn't you say, I I thought of three, and one is the first, and I run the risk with the first one of over preaching this because I'm going to come back to it later. So let me just highlight. But wouldn't the first one, wouldn't you be saying, Tom, 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 if, if you preach about God delighting in you and all that stuff, won't, I don't know, won't this give people like, won't it puff them up? Like, won't it give them the big head? You know, won't it, couldn't it lead toward human pride? I mean, part of the problem with humans, some would say the problem with humans is pride. And here you've got David saying, he delights in me, and I'm going to preach this sermon that he delights in you. Couldn't that lead to more pride? Wouldn't that puff people up? And I guess it could. But I find that more often than not, interestingly, the opposite is true. Now, I've got this really small illustration to illustrate this huge point. This illustration cannot bear the freight of the point I'm making, but it's the best I can do. Here it is. Isn't it true that when someone delights in you, it often doesn't puff you up. It does the op. Look, say you're going to a party and you go all out. You get the nice, you get a nice set of clothes, you get your hair done, you get your nails done, you, you know, you really, you really, you know, get all dolled, down south we'd say you get all gussied up, you know, 
uh, if you're going to a hoedown or whatever it is that you're, that you're going to, right? But you get what I'm saying? I mean, you really are looking good. You, you've done your best to look sharp. And somebody comes up to you at that party and says to you, girl, right? Or, my man, you are looking spiffy. You look, <laughs> like, who says spiffy? You look dashing. He comes up to you with a monocle and, oh, who is that? <laughs> I don't know who says these words, but you know what I mean? You look cool adjective, cool adjective. You, you're, 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 you really got it going together, man. You look good. Woo, girl, you look, look really good. You know, my, up top, high five. You, you know, you did it. You look beautiful and all that. In that moment, I guess, I suppose I can imagine a scene where someone would say, like, would you, if that happened to you, would the first thing you say, I am terribly interested in what you have to say. Can you expound on that? <laughs> Go on. No, specifically. What, what, it's, I know. Can you, in fact, can we go to a qu- more quiet area where you can talk more about how great I look? Like, I'd, I'd really love to hear more about that. Could you write down in written form some of the things that, look, right? If that's your reaction, if that's what you do, then yes. For you, Psalm 18, 19, we're going to have to have a talk after the service, okay? But the vast majority of you don't do that. You don't do that. When someone comes up and delights in you, you do the exact opposite. You shuffle your feet and look down and go, well, the lighting must not be very good because if you could see me, I'm actually hideous. I'm totally monstrous. And Look away, right? That's what you do because I do the same thing, right? And Christians take it to a whole new level of awkward because we're not supposed to be pride and vain. And so we're like, well, well, Proverbs eleven twenty two says, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without virtue. So, <laughs> right? And then you're like, I'm going to go to the buffets. Christians are so weird. Do you understand my point? When someone delights in you, it doesn't actually puff you up. It tends to humble you in this weird way. We're going to come back to that in a more serious sense, but the second misunderstanding that I thought of that is a little more theologically serious is, but Tom, okay, fine, so, so nobody's really going to get the big head, but couldn't, they, couldn't the opposite be true? Here's what I mean. If you preach God delights in you, couldn't people think that God delights in them because of some good in them that has like won the favor of God. See, and this is a real danger, to think that they've done some stuff so good that they have at last earned the favor of God. Or that maybe, maybe they've done enough good deeds and they could be really prideful because they're a really good person, they're really smart, they're really pretty, they're really you know, uh, 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 wonderful and moral, and so of course God delights in me because I've earned it. And that would, but more than that, what if then the opposite is true? People who don't feel very smart People who don't feel very intelligent, people who don't feel very, very, very pretty, they'll look at this and go, well, then, of, of course he delights in King David. David's the man. And of course he delights in the king. David's this good-looking, you know, hero who slays Goliath. Me, I'm, I'm none of those things. You know, David's the king. Everybody delights in the king. Why would God ever delight in me, right? And so it could fall either into pride or despair, People think, well, God will never delight in me. And that's a real danger when you preach God delights in you, that an object of God's delight is namely you. Couldn't people think that God only delights in us if we've earned that delight? Well, not only does the entire canon of Scripture straighten out that misunderstanding, but this very verse does. And here it is. Look at the order carefully. The Scriptures say, He rescued me because He delighted in me. 
Do you see the logic of the word because? The scriptures do not say, after the rescuing, after the chaos and suffering and weakness and fear and sin and brokenness were all overcome, once I'd been set in the open place and had all my stuff together, then, and only then, God delighted in me. That's not what it says at all. No, it does not say after I was able to clean myself up and rescue myself, then I persuaded God to delight in me. No, what it says is when my life was a chaotic mess, when I was desperate, when I was afraid, when I was hiding in caves and killing enemies, sleeping with Bathsheba, killing her husband, in the midst of all that, God rescued me. In the midst of all my brokenness, God rescued me. Why? Because he delighted in me. Romans 5.8, Paul makes the same point. Romans 5 is this really cool chapter where Paul's talking about if, this very point, if you were a really good person, you might, if you were really, really, really good, you might convince somebody to die for you. But he says, but God's love is different. He says, but God, totally different, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in the midst of our brokenness, not God waited for me to clean myself up so that he could rescue me while I was in the midst of sin. My point is his love, his delight is reserved for those who are not fixed, who are not out of their brokenness yet. And so don't get, don't get it twisted to think that David somehow pleased the Lord and, and, and that's David you know, earned some great delight before God. Just the opposite. He rescued him in the midst of all that trouble because of his delight. And the third misunderstanding I could see people thinking is, well, if, okay, Tom, if you preach that God delights in people, I don't know, isn't that going to give them like, isn't that going to go a little soft on sin? What do you mean? Well, you know, like if you say God delights in you, aren't people going to think that he delights in all the sin in your life? And that he's, in other words, he's totally cool with sin. He's totally cool with sin in your life. Somebody who would say that, I would say, I would argue, they, they either don't understand God's delight, or they don't understand sin, or possibly both. Here's what I mean. If you think God delights in you could mean, well, he's cool with all your sin, then I'm not sure you understand sin. If you think sin, if you think of sin as this really cool and fun thing that grumpy old God won't let you have, then yes, I could see, I could see how, you, how you might think that. But the Bible doesn't talk about sin that way. It talks about a power that we've allowed ourselves to become slaves to, wherein we choose to be our own gods. And sin is much more like a cancer raging and destroying a body from the inside out. Many of you in here have loved ones who have battled or are battling cancer. And isn't it true? The more you delight in the loved one, the more you are not cool with the cancer. Right? In the same way, God is relentless in his wrath and judgment upon sin in your life. Why? Because of his delight. In you. Some people think that the wrath of God and the love of God are so different. God is really wrathful on sin in spite of the fact he loves you. I would say they're the same. He's really wrathful on sin because of the fact that he loves you. And he wants nothing in you that's going to destroy you. You know, when I think of delight, the thing that comes to mind for some reason uh, most often uh, is uh, two years ago, my nephew, Isaac, he's, I don't know, seven or eight or ten or whatever, uh, 
you lose track, uh, but uh, he got this uh, Lego set, and if you know kids that are totally geeked out on Legos, it's like, the, I mean, the universe just begins to revolve around this Lego set, and he got the Death Star, I don't know if there's any Star Wars fans in here, but this Death Star, it's a long story, um, and he gets this thing, it's like, it's like 50 bazillion pieces, it's unbelievable, and everybody else is having fun the whole Christmas holiday, our family had come in, everything, Isaac is locked in a room delighting in this Lego model. There's no other word for it. I mean, he just delights in it. And then in one of the greatest lines that any eight-year-old has ever said, we were like, Isaac, is that thing done? And he comes down and says, I mean, he could have said, yeah, it's done, but he didn't. He said, oh, I assure you, this Death Star is fully operational. (laughs) Yes, yes, you did. Yes, you did. And we go up, and when he looked at us and looked at us looking at it, it was just delight. It was sheer delight, sheer delight. Let me tell you something. If one Lego piece had been out of place, holy, righteous indignation, wrath upon that Lego piece that's out of place. Why? Why? Because he, le- hated, because he hated Legos? Because he was not cool with anything that was out of place in what he delighted in. The reason God hates sin in your life is because it's out of place in the one he delights in. He's... Saying God delights in you doesn't excuse your sin. It puts the crosshairs of his wrath right on it so that you can burn it out of your life. These are all real dangers, but I think the greatest misunderstanding would not be to, to, to say, well, uh, it is a misunderstanding to think that you know, people would you know, get the big head or be puffed up or think that they earn God's love. But the larger misunderstanding would be for Christians never to hear this preached. That God delights in his beloved. God is not ashamed of this truth. You, you know, um, you ever notice uh, that the parents, maybe some of you have done this. I think it's great. When they put the bumper sticker on the back of their van where it's like, my kid is the honor roll student at, you know, Longwood Elementary or whatever. Yeah, and, um, you know, the kids are all like, you know. But uh, uh, I saw one recently. My kid was inmate of the month at uh, county prison or whatever. I was like, ah, you know. But sometimes, I think that's in response. Like I saw one bumper sticker, my kid beat up your honor student or whatever. I think they misunderstand the point. See, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Why do parents do that? Why do parents put that on the minivan? It's not. It is not because they're showing off to other parents. And that's what people who, you know, they think that, well, you know, so I'll put on a retaliatory bumper sticker that says my kid beat up your, because they think they're bragging to other parents. Parents don't put that thing on there for the parents. They put it on there for the kid. They're trying to show, they are trying to impress their great delight on that child. What they're trying to say is, you did a good thing, and I'm going to ruin the resale value of our Odyssey, because that's how much I care, right? And that means the world to that kid. They're not doing it to show off to it. Maybe some of them are, but by and large, these parents aren't doing it. They're doing it to impress upon their child. And they do it not just in that way, but in many ways. Why? Because we know if a child knows he or she is delighted and they grow up free and, 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 and confident and joyful. We do it in imperfect ways as earthly parents, but God, the perfect, perfect heavenly father, has no problem slapping this bumper sticker on Psalm 1819. And talking about his delight. Now, from that amazing truth, David draws some incredible conclusions and some amazing revelations. Now, again, I just got to say this. If you're you're brand new to church and you're brand new to the Bible, what I'm about, the next verse I'm about to show you is not at all controversial. You'll be like, yeah, totally. If, however, you've been around theology and church and the Bible for a long time, I'm telling you, if you thought this verse could cause misunderstanding, brace yourself. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. And all the young, restless, and reformed are like, 
All the Calvinists are like, killing me, man. I feel you. Okay, here's what I mean. If you've been around church in a while, you understand this verse. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can David say, according to my righteousness, if he means, if he literally means, because I am morally blameless in the sight of God, then that, that's absurdly self-righteous for a couple reasons. One, remember what I told you the verse comes from 2 Samuel? Do you know what else we find in 2 Samuel? His adultery with Bathsheba. Same book, same exact book. His adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Bathsheba's husband, then being confronted by the prophet Nathan. So this is the guy who did all that. There's no way he means, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. Yep, I earned my right standing before God. Thank you, don't need a sacrifice, don't need atonement, I'm the man. He can't mean that. The other reason I know he can't mean that is because the same guy, David himself, not like another psalm, a psalm of David, Psalm 143, what does it say? Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry for mercy, enter not into judgment with your servant, Here it is, for no one living is righteous before you. That's what David said just a few chapters later. Or how about uh, Psalm 53? There is no one who does good, not even one. No one who understands or seeks after God. That's King David. So we know he doesn't mean literally I am righteous in the court of God. What's he talking about? What's he talking about is his context. Remember, remember what's going on? He's being chased by Saul. For doing what? What crime has he done? Nothing. He was a faithful servant, a valiant, loyal warrior for Saul. He has blessed Saul. He's befriended Saul's son. He's married Saul's daughter. And he was being pursued as an enemy, though he was in the right. He was righteous. And he's praising God that after all these years, justice has finally been done. And justice has been done by God. He rewarded me. He saw that I I didn't do it. I didn't do anything wrong. And I mean, chased as an enemy. Thank you, God, for finally finally pointing this out. And and the next verse is, too, remember, and here's a key point. Remember, not once in 2 Samuel, not once, twice. You remember this? Twice, David had a chance to take Saul's life. See, Saul's pursuing him, and not once, but twice. Once David is in a cave, man, I hope Saul doesn't come in here. Man, his army's going to kill him. Saul comes alone into the cave to have some time alone. And uh, it comes in there all by himself, and, and, and all his friends are like, David, 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 David. He's all alone in a darkened cave. You're surrounded by mighty warriors. God is so good. Let's kill him, right? <laughs> and David's like, I'm not touching the Lord's anointed. I know his statutes. I know his laws. I'm going to be blameless in his sight. And so he goes up just to prove, to get some vindication, he saws off part of Saul's robe so that later he can be like, I could have killed you. That's your robe. The almost same thing happens again. Hey, I heard Saul's camp's down here and they're asleep. Come with me. And David and his dude go down there. And there they find Saul with what next to him? A pointy spear. His buddy's like, this is a sign from God. End it. We're all good. Like, that's it. It would take two seconds. Yeah, I'll do it for you. I got it. And David's like, no, 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 no. We'll take this spear to spear to show him we could have, but we didn't twice. And that's what he means. He's like, look, look, look. I, I kept the ways of the Lord. I've not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me. His statutes I did not put away from me. And what's he say? I was blameless before him. I kept myself from guilt. I could have killed him, and I didn't. And that's why I believe God poured out that goodness to me. Look, he changes the wording a little bit. The Lord's requirement. Re- the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. And he adds in the second verse, in his sight. Perhaps here, even David would not have not known how important those words were. But to think that God imputed Christ's righteousness so that we too could be clean in his sight. Look, here's my point. All these things are in praise. He's delighting in God. 
all this blameless living he's doing, right? He's doing all this blameless living. Here's my point. It wasn't to earn God's delight. It was because he knew he had God's delight. That God's delight rested on him, changed him forever. So that's the verse I want you to go home remembering. He rescued me because he delighted in me. David Wilkerson, who was the pastor for years at Times Square Church, he once preached on this, and he said, this is the source of all rescue. Whether you are in a cave of despair, a pit of lust, whatever attack you're facing, the secret is this, knowing that God delights in you. And then, when that happens over and over again, that you are loved, you are loved, you are loved, you suddenly begin to delight yourself in God. He says, that's the secret to rescue. I tend to agree. I know, I know, look, I know you could run the risk of someone misunderstanding these verses and getting all prideful, but isn't the greater risk that Christians would miss out on the truth of this verse and never let their hearts be flooded with the joy that comes from believing that God has delighted in even me, in me. All right, Charles Spurgeon. I mean, you know when you're going Spurgeon at the end. All right, Spurgeon. This is some old English, but he wrote this thing called A Treasury of Psalms. And I'm telling you, when I read it, I was like, well, I just have to read that to everybody. And I'm sorry, I don't like to be the guy who reads stuff because you're supposed to preach stuff and all this. But I... here's what he said. He delivered me. <laughs> That's my Spurgeon voice. <laughs> you look smashing. He delivered me because he delighted in me means this. This is what Spurgeon says this verse means. That verse means this to Charles Spurgeon. If you don't know who Charles Spurgeon is, he's this uh, old preacher. He's long gone. And he uses these really flowery sentences. Anyway, free grace lies at the foundation. Rest assured, if we go deep enough, sovereign grace is the truth which lies at the bottom of every well of mercy. If you go deep enough, sovereign grace is the truth that lies at the bottom of every well of mercy. And then one of the a crazy sentence. Deep sea fisheries and the ocean of divine bounty always bring the pearls of electing, discriminating love to light. Skip that one. Why? Here it is. Here's the one, though. Here's the one. You ready? Why Jehovah should delight in us is an answerless question and a mystery which angels cannot solve. But that he does delight in his beloved is certain. Believer. He says, imperative mood. You understand? Believer, sit down and inwardly digest this verse and learn to view the uncaused love of God as the cause of all the blessings in your life. Charles Adams Spurgeon. Let me say it again. Believer, sit down. And inwardly ponder that verse until you learn that the uncaused love of God is the cause of all the blessings that flow into your life. It's the uncaused love of God. He delighted in you. Why? I don't know. But I know he does. Now, in my life, listen, in my life, personally, I have been most humbled. I'm talking about humbled. I'm using that word intentionally. I personally, I don't know about you, I personally have been most humbled in my life, not by a word of judgment, though those words have humbled me. 
a, a, a word of, of law, of conviction, no doubt. But in my life, I've not been most humbled by a word of judgment, but by words of grace. Many times I have been in my study pondering a book or a scripture on judgment and felt conviction. Many times I have been oppressed when the Lord's hand has been heavy on me, no doubt. I have had my heart softened by a strong word of the law, but the times I've had my heart obliterated, wrecked. I'm talking showstopper, drop the book and just weep over my sin and brokenness. Have ironically, every time, not been traced back to some new word of conviction, but traced back to some new revelation of how he loves me. I know that's counterintuitive. You would think hearing about the deep love of God is just going to puff people up and give license to their sin. But people who think that, I wonder, have you ever really, really experienced the uncaused love of God? Doesn't it do the opposite? Have you never been to a foot washing? I've been to many. I, I have. I have washed feet. Nowadays, it's, it, it's usually an act of symbolic service because that's not a custom. But it's humbling to wash people's feet. And you think that's very humbling, right? That act of service. Oh, you, you washed people's feet. It is. I was humbled to do it. But in a small way, maybe secretly, I actually could take a little pride in it. In fact, I can still take a little pride in it because look now, I'm telling you about how I've washed feet and assuming that you're going, what a humble man of God that guy is. You see? You see that? But once... In the summer of 2000, I was preaching my heart out at this summer camp for like a 10-week camp. I was preaching five nights a week. And on week eight, this old dude came up to me at some free time. And he said, uh, Brother Tom, the Lord just laid on my heart to do this. Would you, would you allow me to pray over you? I'm like, yeah, man, I need prayer. And he brings me into this dark room. And he had a bucket. And he asked me to take off my, <clears throat> well, you get the point of the story, right? So I take off my shoes and socks. He begins to wash my feet and pray God's anointing into my life. It's a humbling after service to wash somebody's feet. But to have your feet washed by the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, to delight in God. But to know he delights in me, I don't think it puffs you up. A word of law can like bend your pride a little. But a true word of grace will crush it. That's all. Believer, sit down and digest this verse until you learn to view the uncaused love of God as the cause of every blessing in your life. Now, I knew we were about to take communion, so I wanted to emphasize how it happens is this. How it happens is this. David wrote those psalms about how I'm righteous, I'm blameless in his sight, and God's rewarded me and all that. <clears throat> how could David say that? How could David be given the righteousness of God? You and I know something that David is just writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Even he couldn't have picked this up. <clears throat> but, but you and I know that one day a son of David would come for whom these verses are literally true. Not just like, I didn't do anything wrong against Saul. I mean, I, I slept with Bathsheba, who wasn't my wife, and killed her husband. But like, in this particular small area, I'm right, okay? There was coming one day someone, someone, who those verses were absolutely true. He never did anything wrong. From, from the manger in Bethlehem 
all the way to the empty tomb, did nothing wrong. And when he says, I was righteous and blameless, he means it. And so righteous and blameless, the Bible says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the very righteousness of God. He laid out punishment for David's sin, for mine, for everybody you see up here. It was laid out on Jesus. He took the wrath of God so that we could be forever moved from being under the wrath of God to being children of his delight. That's all because of Jesus. That's it. That, that, only, that transaction happened because of Calvary's cross. So sit down this week and meditate on that verse that he would delight in me. That, that Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him of having you and me. That he stumbled over that treasure in the field because he treasures you and me. Let that sink into your heart until you view the uncaused love of God as the sole cause of all the blessings in our life. The ushers are going to prepare us to have... You don't have to sit down and meditate for now. You can stand up and meditate. It's going to be right here in front of you. The uncaused love of God in bread and juice form. I love it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for delighting in a human that you made, that you had to rescue and save by your great redemption, that you would grant us holiness and then be pleased by the holiness that you gave us. It's an answerless question why you would delight in us, but a certain fact. And so we stand on that fact and we praise you for it. I pray that we are better, more courageous, nobler, and more in tune, more in love with you, more loving to our neighbor, our own families, all because this truth sinks deep into our heart of the uncaused love of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.